0: 1 Peter 3, I'll begin in verse 18, reading through the end of the chapter. I'll give you a second to turn there. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. The Word of God says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, as your word is open to us this morning, is read for us, is preached, I pray that your spirit would be among us, instructing our hearts, that we would look more to Christ, look more like Christ, that we would grow in obedience, discipline, and understanding. Help us to apply this text today. Help us to take baptism seriously and to rejoice in the signs that you have given us, your people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.
1: So um, last week, um, I began trying to provide the beginning or laying the foundation of a rationale for covenant baptism. I'll say this as we proceed, so we're through, I think, probably two sermons now working on this particular passage of 1 Peter 3. Next week, we will have our, our maybe, perhaps, likely, our last sermon on this section of 1 Peter 3, but it will depend on how far we get this morning. I will say this, if if one is thinking, um, so so I've mentioned to you already this morning at the start, that I am making an argument, or laying the foundation for the rationale of of covenant baptism. By covenant baptism, just to be clear. So you hear me, you say, okay, Adam, you're making an argument for something this morning. You, you were doing it last week. You're doing it again this week. What, what exactly is the argument you're trying to make? It, once again, it's, I'm trying to make an argument. And I say that in a, uh, I'm trying to make an argument. I, I think that what I mean to say is that's this is what the passage is teaching. I'm hoping to persuade you that this is what the passage is teaching and I'm doing so in an argumentative way so that you can track how the passage is teaching it. When you say, but what is it teaching? And I say covenant baptism, you say then to me, but what do you mean, what is covenant baptism? By that I mean that mom and dad in relationship through faith to Christ, Christ as savior, Mom and dad, or just mom or just dad, are in a relationship of salvation to the Savior through the empty vessel of faith. Remember, faith is not a work. Faith is not performative. Faith is an empty vessel which receives another's performance. That performance particularly being Jesus of Nazareth, God's appointed son, the savior of sinners. To that performance, to that one we look, as we gaze upon him through the hearing of the gospel, the empty vessel of of faith receives all of him and all of his benefits. Mom and dad in said relation, or dad or mom, in said relation, have little ones. God's intent in covenant with dad and mom is that he is also in covenant with boy and girl or little ones so that god is nourishing and benefiting that entire household as he is nourishing and benefiting dad in relation to him mom in relation to him and the little brood of children with them also this is the argument i'm trying to make from this passage of first peter three by considering and digging out what we learn from noah because peter says Christians, baptism corresponds to the Noahic event. So, we're in pursuit together as a body of believers gather on Lord's Day, as we're working through 1 Peter to deal with Peter saying, Christian baptism corresponds to flood. Therefore, we as believers gathered who are baptized wish to discern in what way does Christian baptism correspond? And then by learning in the manner in which baptism corresponds to flood events, all of us are deeply appreciative of the sign of baptism uh, and we grow in appreciation for that sacrament that's provided. Again, I began laying the rationale for covenant baptism. I did so by describing And this is a big part of it. So as a note taker and as somebody conceiving uh, of what I'm trying to get at, when you're viewing the Old and the New Testament in your Bible, and we all are viewing it, we're reading it, we're considering it, we're hearing and preaching out of both Testaments, we we rejoice over the entirety of Scripture, not part and parcel, that this portion and that portion. We rejoice over all 66 canonical books. So, but then uh, what it does to our mind, and when reading the Old Testament text and reading the New Testament text, is to understand how do the two testaments correspond to one another? So that as a Christian reader, I'm reading the Old Testament text, and then I ask myself, how? How do I read the Old Testament text to great benefit to myself? And do I consider the Old Testament text in its own kind of hermetically sealed container. I open this, drop the Old Testament in, and I close it, latch it, and lock it. That's how I conceive it. And then over here in this container, I open it, and I put the New Testament, and I seal it. And there's two separate jars containing two separate testaments. Or do I look at it as one unified piece of Christian literature? If you say, yes, I look at it as one continuous, Piece of Christian literature. Two testaments united by one Savior, one work, one provision, one unified Catholic faith, the same object of salvation through both testaments being that of the promises of God as are made clear in Christ Jesus. Yes, I believe that, that it's. Two testaments and one beautiful canon in a unified work that points to Jesus Christ. It's all Christian literature. Then as we consider how the two testaments then work hand in glove together, we do so by calling it covenant continuity. Simply meaning, and I don't want you to get lost in the term continuity or covenant. I will make it as plain as day, I'm sure. I've labored at this. I want to be helpful. All we mean by covenant continuity, but I say this because it's a big piece of the puzzle, is that God's covenant structure, how he interacts with mankind by way of covenant, the way that God structures his covenant interactions with people in the Old Testament is continued into the New Testament. So that when Peter says that baptism, believers... Baptism in the New Testament corresponds to the flood event in the Old Testament. We are right. And and I, I, I say this again, please, I really want to be helpful. But I am making a distinction between being right and being wrong. So that I am putting forward to you that when Peter says Baptism in the New Testament, Adam Thomas, corresponds to the flood event. Adam, Redeemer, believers, reading this text, you are right, as in not wrong, but right to first discern and then to apply the pattern which we see in the flood events between God and Noah and Noah's household. We are right in Christian baptism to discern from the Noahic events of Genesis six. We are first to discern and then to apply the patterning of God's interaction between himself and his people in the Noahic events to believers in the New Testament. So I'm saying this to you at this point. Just be able or study or pursue or consider how your understanding of Christian baptism, the sacrament of baptism, for you as a Christian, how your understanding of Christian baptism corresponds to the Noahic event. I'm making an argument for how I think it does, and I would urge you to receive it. But if at some point it's like I'm just unsettled as to how, then begin pursuing. How does Christian baptism correspond to the Noahic event? And then you say to me, but why do I need to pursue that? Because Peter just told you, your baptism corresponds to it. What have we discerned in the Noahic events? Because, again, I'm making the argument that we are right to first discern the elements of the events and then to apply that pattern to us in Christian baptism. Well, what did we then discern? Number one, we have discerned so far that God establishes a gracious covenant with Noah. This, we, this horse has been beat dead. This we have firmly fixed and established from Genesis 6. God establishes a gracious covenant with Noah. What would we describe Noah as being... When we're thinking, okay, Old Testament text and New Testament text, and then we're saying that this is continuous, the way that God deals with person here, the way that he deals with person here. What would we call Noah here? We would call him a believer, right? Noah believed the promises of God. Uh, Noah was accounted in his own generation as blameless and righteous with God. He was a preacher, Jude says, of righteousness. What do we describe Noah as in a summary term? We'd say Noah was a believer so number 1, what we have discerned from the Old Testament text that we should apply to baptism is that God establishes a gracious covenant with believers. Number 2, what have we learned also from the Noahic covenant? What did we discern before we begin applying? Number 2, we've discerned that Noah's household is included in the covenant. What is another term As we advance from uh, the Noahic events through the Old Testament and as we approach the New Testament, what is another term that we would summarize from specifically God saying, Noah, you, your sons, your son's wives, and your wife are all coming in the ark with you. What have we learned across the page of Scripture from a continuous dealings of God with his people perspective? Offspring. We would say offspring. So we would say Noah's household is included in the covenant. So what do we have? We have a believer, Noah, in covenant with God. And who is with the believer in covenant with God? His offspring is with him. God establishes covenants with believers. And their offspring is included in that covenant. Then, as we discern these elements from the flood events, we then see them as a pattern whereby God enters into covenants with his people and their offspring after them in both the Old and in the New Testaments. Let me help you one more step before we progress in a bigger step. Turn back to Genesis 17. I just want to read something for you that I think will be somewhat helpful in seeing the progress and the development of God's covenant with his people. If you're in Genesis 17, just for a brief moment, I don't want to make too much of this text, I just don't have time, but, but I do wish you to see that, remember, God's continuous covenantal structure is, uh, let's say it's like this, if you could look and just see my fingers, you're, you're looking at learning from the Noahic event of God's patterning structured covenants like this. Okay, this is how God interacts with his people. And then what you're doing across the pages of scripture is these same elements, you're seeing them like this across the pages of scripture as they continue to grow and develop. You're not seeing it like this, and then like this, and then like this, and then like this, and then cut off. And then wondering what happens out here. You're watching God and his people as he establishes covenant with them and their offspring. You're watching this development of God and his graciousness grow and develop and expand. So much so, you just left Genesis 6 and saw the beginning, whereby God is in covenant with Noah and his members of his household. Now you're in Genesis 17, and let me show you how God interacts. The great covenant of Abraham, of which the New Testament expands and expounds upon, that you. So if you were here this morning, you would say, who's in the covenant with Abraham? Who's in this gracious covenant? All of you would raise your hands, right? You would say, I am a child of Abraham, indeed through faith, that terminates on Christ. I am named among them. So you would look at this covenant and indeed see the continuity between yourself and Abraham. But do you see the continuity between yourself and Abraham and your offspring? As with Abraham. Look at it carefully with me. I'll show you and then we'll keep moving. I'm just going to jump down to verse 7. If you're in Genesis 17, I'm going to jump in verse 7. This is a statement to uh, the formalization of the covenant between God and Abraham, of which, again, Abraham is our father in the faith, and you can read the book of Romans on that. Beginning in verse seven, it says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Similar to the Noahic development, right? Because there's continuousness here. And then notice at the the next statement, and your offspring, after you, throughout their generations. For how long? uh, Again, the New Testament is coming, this will end surely. No, 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 no. It's more significant than time and space. It's a spiritual understanding. I will make a covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Do you see the nature of this covenant structure is what? Spiritual. How could an everlasting covenant ever be fulfilled in time and space? It cannot be. Clearly, it continues. Verse 8, and I will, give you, I will give to you and to your offspring after you. So he's in covenant with the, the offspring. The land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Well, uh, so that must have ended somewhere in Israel's theocracy. Oh, it could never have done so. It was never intended. Notice the final words of this text. For an everlasting possession. Well, I can't possess earth, time, and space forever. It can't be everlasting. I know. It will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. It's spiritual in nature. And I will be, uh, notice who he says he will belong to and who will belong to uh, to him. I will be their God, your children's God. I I will be their God. Verse nine, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and who else? Your offspring after you. Throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. And then he gives them the sign of that covenant, which is circumcision. And then join with me at the end of verse 13, or or I'll join into verse 13. You'll notice, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh. For how long? An everlasting covenant. Again. What do we learn from simply a cursory reading of Genesis 17 as we consider covenant structure of God's dealings with his people? But we recognize that indeed God enters into covenants with his people and their offspring after them in both the old and in the new covenant testaments. Finally, we are then right to apply this established pattern to such passages as 1 Peter 3, Where we are located this morning now the particular application so that when uh, verse 21 baptism, which corresponds to this the particular Correspondence or the particular application of God's covenant pattern which corresponds to Christian baptism is this And so I'm I'm summarizing for you now what I've tried to lay out in rough kind of parameters so we're moving now, we're considering God's covenant structures goes across both testaments. We see that. It includes your offspring. We see that. And now, what is the particularized piece that applies to baptism out of this covenant structure? It is this. That the head of house... So, so I'm applying this to you folks this morning, to my own self as well. That the head of house spiritually represents all his dependent members. I say head of house because remember as we looked last week to the household baptisms, we looked at Lydia, a woman we otherwise only know and have access to her as being single. And we see that she and all of her household with her shared in the sign of the covenant. They all received baptism. Again, this we considered briefly examining some New Testament examples of the household baptisms, which you can once again go back to the recording or you can continue to read the accounts in the book of Acts. And we followed the book of Acts. Why? Because remember, it's the Apostle Peter who we're studying now who makes that sermon in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and he announces to all who are present, this promise is for you all. And he adds this glorious statement that helps us understand, indeed, God's glorious covenants continue to expand as they move forward. And for your children also. Once again, demonstrating the continuation of God's glorious patterning, that God works, men, Women, children, God works through the head of the house to nourish and benefit all his dependent members. There is a burden and a delight attached to that, both a blessing and a warning. It is a blessing to think that your family growing and being nourished in the faith and in peace and in joy and harmony and meaning and truth and beauty and goodness is a part of the meaning of your own life as a father. There's a beauty to that. Um, there's a joy to that. that. To think humbly that you could be so instrumentally and functionally used in the lives of other people in your care is humbling and nourishing. To think that I am a vehicle whereby my sons and my daughters are nourished in the faith is a glorious thought. Yet it is also a stern warning and a bit of a nervous thought that also they are subject to my failures. They are led astray by my going astray. They are burdened by my disobedience. God nourishes and benefits the household through the head of home. So we must, as head of home, take care to our spiritual nourishment. So that our children are blessed in the Catholic faith. Nourished in the life of the church and not burdened by her strengthened by their times at worship, growing in their times of instruction, altogether benefiting from their life in the faith. Now, the question at this point, and and I I hope that you're discerning this as we move forward. I've said many things. It's really hard not to say a lot of things when you're describing such a text as this. So let me kind of take a big thing and narrow it to a smaller piece, or maybe a more particular thing, this is the question I want you to ask and answer with me in your mind. Does this covenantal pattern, and again, I've established hopefully in some measure that God enters into covenant with his people, and by that covenant, he enters into a covenant with their children, with them. Does this covenantal pattern that we see in Noah and the flood events does this covenantal pattern have a direct impact upon my understanding of christian baptism this is the question i'll read it again because i want you to answer yes or no not audibly i don't want anyone to out themselves but i want you to answer it effectively unto yourself Why do I place this burden at your feet? Because remember, I may be under, your impre- uh, under the impression, uh, by, uh, oh, uh, that would be my impression, I, I may be uh, thought of by you, however is more smoothly stated, um, to be maybe expanding a bit beyond what the statement is in First Peter. When I say that baptism corresponds to this, I build this whole case for covenant baptism, perhaps you're thinking it's a bit of a built case. Fair enough, fair enough. Not to me, but perhaps for you. So I'm laying this question then, wherever we are in agreement, hand in hand, or perhaps a bit distinctive between us, I'm asking this question of you, a- and for me. Does this covenantal pattern, of which both of us acknowledge that there's covenant patterns in scripture, does this covenantal pattern have a direct impact upon my understanding of Christian baptism? Does it or does it not? Perhaps you say, it kind of does not. For me, here is my answer, yes. Does this covenantal pattern, when Peter says baptism, corresponds to this. I'm looking at it and including what corresponds to baptism. The covenantal pattern. The covenantal pattern corresponds to Christian baptism. The covenantal pattern has a direct impact upon my understanding of Christian baptism. What does the impact look like or how would you define said impact? It is this. The direct impact of God's covenantal pattern upon my understanding of Christian baptism is that children, we could even include infants, of parents professing faith in Christ and obedience to him are to be brought safely through water and into the church as members of God's covenant grace, as it was in the days of Noah when eight persons with him were brought safely through the water. Yes, the covenantal pattern directly, not indirectly, but directly impacts my understanding of Christian baptism. I said, That infants of parents, toddlers, juniors, whatever it be, this little brood that you are raising, of parents professing faith in Christ and obedience to him are to be brought safely through water. The question then is this, which I'm sure you already answered, but I want to ask just so we walk in an orderly fashion, and that is, what is the water of safety? What do you mean by that? If, you, if you're saying that, that Adam Thomas ha- has little ones, uh, and that little one, uh, Adam Thomas is professing faith in Christ and, and obedience to him, uh, and, and, then, and then I believe that because I look at the Noahic pattern and my Christian baptism corresponds to it, I believe that my little one needs to be brought safely through the water as eight persons were that day, then what is this water of safety? What is it? Peter says, it's baptism which corresponds to this. What is the water that the little ones with mom and dad are to be brought safely through and into the church as members of God's covenant grace as it was in the days of Noah when eight persons were brought safely through the water? What water are you referencing? It is the water, Peter says, it is baptism which corresponds to this to put a, perhaps a finer note upon it as you're considering how do I, okay so so there's there's pastor Adams uh, connection between baptism corresponds to this okay i, I see that uh, um, let me consider how does my understanding of baptism correspond to bring broadly safely through water as eight persons were that day with noah how does mine connect to the Old Testament scene of the Noahic events. If I could just take one step forward yet again and a finer point, as I have put forward, it is the waters of baptism that correspond to these events with you and your little ones. One author makes this comment, quote, baptism signifies and seals to our children. I'm going to read this entire uh, uh, quotation. I wish it to kind of rest heavy on your mind. So I want you to hear very carefully the thoughts and let it percolate on the brain. I'm leveraging it, I hope, in my argument for it to be a strong help and aid. Considering then your children being brought through the safeties of baptismal water, one author makes this comment, quote, baptism signifies and seals to our children all the blessings of salvation that Christ has won for us, we ought to encourage our children to love and serve the Lord who has died for them. You see, we hear a baby in the audience right now in real time. What ought we do with this little one? Well, what we ought to do is encourage this little one to love and serve the Lord who has died for them. The quotation ends this way, the failure of some parents to regard their children as within God's gracious covenant is a significant error. I agree that indeed it isn't an error of orthodoxy where indeed we break unions or communions but there is not a baptismal debate or a baptismal discussion between communions because baptism is of insignificance. It is a heightened discussion for all of us because indeed we all in good faith love the sacrament of baptism. So it is an important discussion and one we need to lay to heart and to mind. One where we do make errors, we ought to consider them significant. This then leads us into considering how we can speak of Christian baptism in terms of safety. Um, I, I want to share with you two ways we can speak of safety in terms of Christian baptism. Uh, maybe that's odd to you that we would speak of baptism in terms of safety. Notice the connection that I'm making uh, uh, kind of linguistically or rhetorically. When, when eight persons were brought safely through and baptism corresponds to this this safety event, and then we find out, oh, baptism is a safety event. We're asking questions of being brought safely through water. Dad, mom, little ones as eight persons that day. Baptism corresponds to this. How do we, de- do we describe baptism in terms of something of safety? How do we do so? I will give you two ways. I will speak of one this morning and then the second one next week of which perhaps it will conclude our time describing specifically how baptism corresponds to Noahic events. The first one I wish to provide for you this week, we can speak of safety regarding baptism. Uh, Number one, I guess, of two, would be physical safety. Physical safety, and I'm working towards my conclusion now. So ramp up with me the last couple of moments as we move toward the Lord's table, and I'm speaking this morning Of how I can describe and I think of you I think of your little ones I think of my own Christian baptism and I think of it in terms I grow through this particular text in the Noahic event I think of it in terms of safety and then you say to me how is Christian baptism an act of safety and I say back to you brother sister there's a physical safety that's attached to the waters of baptism and you say, man, it seems to open us up to greater liability of drowning. Yes, that was a joke. You can laugh. Um, whatever. Uh, uh, so, so the point being, uh, I'm saying, yes, it's a physical safety to go through the waters of baptism. How? By this, I mean, the baptized. I'm addressing the baptized in the waters of safety. Physical safety by means of baptism. That the baptized... I'm describing your proximity to the sensible blessings that belong to those who are members of the church. By sensible blessings attached to the waters of baptism. So think of it this way. A uh, 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 little one, older one, anyone who enters through the waters of baptism becomes a rightly constituted member of Christ's church. That's how you become member is, yes, I profess, or I profess, instead of these little ones who come with me into the profession, yes, right, through the waters of baptism, you are a member constituted rightly of Christ's church, a member in good standing, to then we invite to the table as baptized member. You, I'm making an argument, are in a place of physical safety, meaning a place of sensible blessings that belong to you as you participate in the church. By sensible, I refer to the practical and functionable benefits whereby knowledge is gathered. What is practical and functionable about belonging to the church that in any way makes my life more safe? What are these sensible, experiential, Functionable practical benefits in belonging to the church that I wouldn't have if I didn't belong to the church I give you four of them number one the hearing of the law and of the gospel You hear the preaching of the word of God. Why is that so significant? Of course, you know, I don't ask to insult. I ask just to be obvious Faith comes through hearing hearing what your neighbor no, hearing the word of truth. You see, it, it, it's, an, it, it's a tremendous blessing that is sensible unto you. It, it's in your ear. It's in your eyes. It's in your gathering. I heard what I ought not to do, and yet I find myself doing it. Is there a remedy? Yes, look to Christ. I heard that at church. I wouldn't have if I weren't there That is a sensible and functional benefit whereby knowledge is gathered. It belongs to the church. It is a sensible blessing. Number two, what is a physical blessing brought to me? By being a member of the church of Christ. Seeing the administration of the sacraments. For those who are believers, directly their faith terminates on Christ and have given a profession of faith to their session, they are welcomed to the table. We'll move to that in just a moment. But I urge you to consider your little ones. Being non-communicate members who who cannot partake because they haven't been catechized. Their faith isn't clear yet. We're uncertain of their standing and terminal point of faith yet. But are they constituted members? Indeed they are, by the waters of baptism. Is there any sensible blessing brought to them as they watch mom and dad partake of the table? Oh, you bet if you teach it to them. You bet. Your little one baptized into the covenant of grace is a member of this church, yet withheld from the table in an uncertain, unstated faith that terminates on Christ, yet to be discipled unto Christ. Watch his dad take bread and put it in his mouth. Hearing the blessing upon dad, this body, dad, was broken for you. Eat it in front of your little one in due remembrance of me. Dad, why are you eating bread? Will the adults beg me to end sermons early? They need a snack midway. We acquiesce. No, no, no. You do beg me to end early. You want a snack right now, but that's not why you come. Why are you drinking this little shot of grape juice or wine? What have you? Why? It's the blood of covenant. That Christ shed for me. You have much to learn about the Lord who has set you free. That is a sensible blessing that if they're at home on the water slide right now, they don't get. If they're out at the ballpark, they don't get. It is a sensible blessing unto those who belong to the church of Christ. We do dance on Sundays instead. Shame on you then. Your little one didn't see it. That is a sensible blessing whereby knowledge is gained and they grow into their faith that terminates on Christ. Number uh, let, me, let, me, let me speak this. number three, nourishment of Christian fellowship. and I kind of just mentioned that, but again, what I mean by that is a blessing that whereby knowledge is added that faith may terminate on Christ is the nourishment of Christian fellowship. You know this as well as I do. there is fellowship everywhere. You can find it in a running community. You can find it in a CrossFit community. You can find it in a guns community. You can find it in a a whatever community you want. Gardening community. There's fellowship to be had out there. I'm talking about the benefit of distinctly Christian fellowship. Whereby Christ is spoken of and shared. Your children are witness to people around your table. That believe in Christ and talk about it. And they sit there and they're like, man, my parents are kind of into this. And we want you to be. See the beauty of Christ's church. Fourthly, and then I'll conclude, the opportunity for prayers to be given and prayers received. Part of that, I I thought of an example of the benefit and the nourishment that comes as Christian children are baptized as members into the church, the sensible blessings they experience, is seeing through mom and dad prayers that are offered and prayers that are received. Uh, my father-in-law went through COVID battle, and many of you know about that. He, he, he's like a, a, a unicorn case now that they're all interested in poking to see if he has, like, standard person blood or whatever. Like, he lasted on a ventilator to untold amounts of time and yada, yada, yada. He pulled through. A part of belonging to the church of Christ is that prayers are offered and prayers are received. I, I, like, I would pray for him, right, at dinner or pray with him occasionally when we'd hear, oh, yeah, we need to pray about grandpa. But then you remember, it went out in updates. People prayed. People said, hey, we're praying for so-and-so. Hey, we're praying for so-and-so. You can share with the kids. Hey, grandpa's getting better. I wonder how that happens. The doctors must have been amazing. Indeed, God works through means, but it's always he who works. Prayers provided, prayers received. This is a sensible blessing that is experienced in the church. Our children should see it, hear it, share it, and expect reception. You see, in these ways and so many others, we experience God's grace and enjoy inestimable privilege by belonging to the church of Jesus Christ. In conclusion, those of us who have laid hold of our baptism as we begin to come to the supper, believe that for which our baptism stands. It is not a bare sign, but it is a seal. It is a guarantee of the grace of Christ that has brought us safe thus far and surely will lead us home. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your church, the organism of Christ's body. We praise you for its worship that we're able to gather and that you've called us to gather and that you've given us the recipe for worship, how you might be most glorified in us, that we would gather on Lord's day and we would worship you the way that you told us you want to be worshiped. So, so let our church be eager to do what you desire to be done. By gathering, singing, giving, sharing, preaching, baptizing, and feeding. I pray that you will help our congregation. Help me. Help us all. As we look to 1 Peter 3. And the other relevant passages on your love of baptism. The sign and sacrament provided to your church. To the adults who profess. And to their children after them. Help us in this understanding. Help us to grasp it and glory in it. Now as we move to the table, strengthen those of us indeed baptized and our faith terminates clearly and confessedly upon Christ Jesus as Lord. Let us receive of your bread and receive of your cup in a way so as our faith to rise and yet again be nourished. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.